The scripture for today is Matthew chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. It can be found on page 8 in your bulletin. Before I read, would you pray for me? Pray with me for illumination? Jesus, thank you for your word. Uh, we ask that you would help us to listen, illuminate this passage, bring clarity for what you would have to teach us. God, that we would leave here changed to be more like you. Amen. Matthew 5. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up the mountain. And after he sat down, his disciples came to him. Then he began to speak and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. And blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. The word of the Lord. Our habit is to pass out manuscripts of the sermons, especially for people who want to think about these things later or who, who don't speak English as their first language. So our lovely music intern, Mary Shin, is passing out manuscripts. She's over there and get her attention when she passes by and you can get a manuscript. I also want to say that, um, first of all, if you want to stay at the Winowski's house, please call first. <laughs> Um, but really, our hospitality is your hospitality because Geneva owns that house and it's our pleasure to use it for the good of others. Friends of Jesus Christ, preaching on these eight foundational sayings that come at the beginning of Jesus' first big chunk of teaching in Matthew's gospel, these sayings that we often call the Beatitudes, it's a little like preaching on the Ten Commandments in one sermon. There's so much here, and these things are so fundamental to human life and human flourishing that nobody could ever say enough in one sermon or eight sermons or 80 sermons. So let's just get past that limitation. You'll be here for a long time today. No, I'm just kidding. My goal isn't really to try to feed your souls by stuffing as much of this material into your ears as I possibly can in the space of one sermon. I'd actually like to leave you a little bit hungry, to give you just enough of a taste of this goodness to leave you wanting more so that long after this sermon is over and this service is over and this day is over, you keep coming back to the wisdom that flows from the mouth of Jesus, the light of the world. I can't really think of a better or more creative way to deal with these eight sayings than just by going through them one by one and trying to build on them the way they actually build on one another. The first thing Jesus says is this, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. 
Jesus has plenty to say about wealth and poverty and how we hold our money, how we love our money. But the real question Jesus raises here is not so much about how much money you have or how much anything you have. I think it goes much deeper than that. It's a question about how much of you, how much of me, how much of us, our security for the present and our hope for the future rests on. Is the foundation of your well-being now and in the world to come based on what you have and what you've done and what you have to offer God and to offer others? Or is all your hope in God and in what God can do and has done and will do for you? And how, if you submit it to God, God could use you for others. That's what I think Jesus is getting at in this first and most foundational of these eight sayings. Or let me try to put it another way. Um, I don't know if you ever pay attention to these reflections on page three of the bulletin, but sometimes they really capture some great wisdom of the world and uh, if that's, that's out there in the world. Uh, not wisdom of the world, but in the world. Um, but but there's, there's Several interesting people quoted. One is John Calvin, who I, I think after Augustine is my favorite theologian. Another is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who's one of the great witnesses to Christ of the 20th century. But the one that really grabbed me was by Herman Melville, who wrote Moby Dick. And he says, Heaven have mercy on us all, Presbyterians and pagans alike, for we are all somehow dreadfully cracked about the head and sadly in need of mending. This describes our broken and destitute human condition. This describes what it means to be poor in spirit. And this saying of Jesus, this first one, describes also the characteristic shape of the gospel because it is an exchange. Those who hold on to their lives will lose them. But those who lose their lives will find them. Every follower of Jesus has to embrace that, not just as a truth, but as a matter of life and death, and especially a matter of life, a way of living. In the kingdom of God, loss is gain. Dying to yourself is the way to everlasting life. And Jesus didn't just talk about this. Jesus embodied this. Jesus not only refused every opportunity to be exalted, refused every time they offered him the crown, he refused to become a worldly king. But on a deeper level, he always and only received the life that God provided for him. From the moment of his lowly birth in a stable, through every moment of his life, the way he described his life was this. Foxes have all holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And he lived this way right up to the very end when he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. If you want to know what it looks like to be poor in spirit, look at Jesus. What about us? What does that look like 
for us? How, does, how, do, how do we shape our lives around this value? I don't think you really even need to look much beyond the Sermon on the Mount, and you'll see all of these sayings sort of becoming the foundation for everything else Jesus says, not just in the Sermon on the Mount, but in all of his teachings. But Jesus gives us in the Sermon on the Mount this kind of counsel. Don't worry about tomorrow. Don't worry what you will eat or drink. Don't worry about what you will wear. Look at the birds. Look at the flowers. Your heavenly Father takes care of them. Aren't you much more important than they are? And the great thing you discover about the lowliness Jesus invites us into is that it always exalts us. If you are poor in spirit, the kingdom of heaven is yours. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. How many of us aspire towards mourning? All of these kingdom sayings go so completely against the grain of this world and its kingdoms and also against the grain of our human nature. The world values wealth and power, and so do we. Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit. The world encourages the pursuit of happiness, and our own hearts lean that way too. Jesus says, happy are those who mourn because God will comfort them, because they will know a joy that, will, that no one can take away ever. What does it mean to mourn? It doesn't mean always being on a downer. It doesn't mean being a perpetual buzzkill to the people around you. Mourning has an object. It's a response to some troubling reality outside yourself or inside yourself. I can think of two occasions on which Jesus specifically mourned. What's the shortest verse in the Bible? You all know that, right? John eleven thirty five. He wept at the grave of Lazarus. He wept because of death. He wept because of the sin that leads to death. And he, left, he wept because of the dark doubts that lingered in the hearts of his disciples who had already seen so many of his works of power and who thought that all hope was dashed by death. Jesus wept. And Jesus wept over Jerusalem, over its coming destruction, and over all the reasons it ever was destroyed, the stubbornness and rebellion of its people and their constant unresponsiveness to God's love. He cried out these words, How often I would have gathered you the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you would not have it. Christian prayer often bears that stamp of mourning, of lament. Yes, we praise God. Yes, we thank God. Yes, we ask for things we need, our daily bread. But we also pray, forgive us our debts. That's a form of mourning. Spare us from temptation. That's a form of mourning. We recognize the world's fallenness and our own. One of the oldest and most familiar Christian prayers is Kyrie eleison. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy. But Christian mourning can also and must also go beyond prayer. It must become an active practice. Do you experience temptation? Then certainly you should pray, deliver us from temptation. But you should probably also do more. For example, here's, here's a foretaste of something Jesus says later in the Sermon on the Mount. If your eye causes you to sin, 
tear it out, throw it away. That doesn't mean literally tear your eyes out, but it does mean tame your your visual habits. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. Repentance is always active, a sort of daily weeding of the garden so that it doesn't get choked out. And these kinds of steps towards spiritual health are rooted in sorrow, in alarm, in mourning. But they call us towards a source of true and lasting comfort. Again, it's a dying and a rising. Jesus calls us to enter through the narrow way, and that will probably hurt. That will probably cause some sorrow. That will mean some serious letting go. That will certainly lead us in a different direction from the pursuit of happiness that the world urges us towards and that our own hearts willingly follow in. But blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Jesus rarely used any adjective to describe himself. He used a lot of images, a lot of nouns. But on one occasion, he invited people to become his disciples by saying this, Come to me, you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am meek and lowly of heart. And you will find rest for your souls. Meekness is kind of a weird and mysterious thing. It's not a high value anywhere in the world that we inhabit on a daily basis. The world values people who take matters into their own hands. Your your whole education is probably aimed at forming you into a person who knows how to speak up and go after what you want. And that's what the world values. The world rewards those who, who know how to push their way to the front of the line or get in the fast lane. But let's not mistake meekness, the kind of meekness Jesus is talking about, for being unambitious or timid or cowardly or indecisive or just plain lazy. Jesus challenged the hypocrisy of the powerful Pharisees. He overturned the tables of the money changers. He put his healing hands on the sick and the unclean. Our Savior took significant risks. He was courageous, if meek. And perhaps his most powerful moments of meekness came at the end of his life, when he stood before the most powerful person in the region he inhabited, the governor Pontius Pilate. And Pilate had already displayed his power over Jesus by having his flogged, having him flogged. But Jesus stood face to face with Pilate and said, You would have no power over me unless it had been given to you from above. And then Jesus submitted to Pilate's sentence of death, though he said to his disciples he could have called on more than 12 legions of angels. Not because Pilate was anything, not because anybody in this world was anything, but because this was what the Father asked of him. Meekness is essentially a willing submission to a Father in heaven. And this is the kind of thing that Jesus asks of us, as we'll hear later in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you, do not resist an evildoer. 
But if anyone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to, you, turn to that person the other also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your coat, offer your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go a mile, go also a second mile. This seems like astonishingly bad advice. But you have to consider the source and the, the end that he has in mind. These are the words of a man who hung dying on a cross, surrounded by jeering crowds and tormentors, and all he had to say about them was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. But he knew what he was doing. He knew who it was he was submitting to, and he knew what he was going to inherit, and he knew that he was doing this to save a human race that he loved probably more in spite of it than because of it. You might notice that something happens, something interesting in the fourth saying. The first three sayings are mainly about a kind of letting go. Being poor in spirit is letting go of any claims you may have even on yourself and any hope you have that's based on yourself. Letting go of your pride, your power, your control of outcomes. Mourning means essentially abandoning every worldly pursuit of happiness and seeking a different kind of joy. Meekness is letting go of your rights and your claims and even your own judgment about what's in your best interest if God leads you in a different direction. These things are a radical turning away from the self and from the things that we selfishly pursue. It's the first part of repentance dying to the old, to the self, and to the self's selfish desires. But now, in this fourth saying, Jesus does make a place for desire. And he offers us a worthy object of our human appetite. And he promises to satisfy. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. This is a powerful acknowledgement about our human nature. Jesus does not advise us to abandon desire, to go spiritually flatline, to empty our hearts of any yearning. Desiring is part of being human. Desiring is a way of bearing God's image. God has desires, and we were created to have desires too. In fact, the God who created us desires us, and we were created to desire God. And I think that's the key to this saying. The point is not to eliminate desire, but to turn away from false desires and things that do not satisfy and to kindle right desire. And again, and as always, Jesus embodied this perfectly. My food and drink, he says, is to do the will of my Father in heaven. And, on the sermon on, and in the Sermon on the Mount, he leads us in the same direction. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you as well. But emphasis on the first part, seek first the kingdom. The rest of these sayings really continue that same momentum away from self and towards God and God's kingdom. They tell a story not only of refocusing our desires, but transforming our character, reshaping our hearts, restoring human endeavor, and renewing the proper image of God in us. That sounds like a lot, and it is, but this is what 
the coming, this is what coming into the kingdom of God means. And this is what coming into the kingdom of God requires. This is what being a citizen of the kingdom of heaven looks like. Let me, let me trace out a little quicker now the progression that these last four sayings follow. The next saying is, blessed are the merciful, for they will receive mercy. In some sense, this is an exchange, almost a transaction, a letting go of one thing to get another. You let go of your claims against others, and God lets go, go of any claims that God may have against you. You show mercy, and you receive mercy. But this is also about transforming your character, becoming a person who is inclined by nature towards mercy. And then again, you can think of how Jesus embodied this when he prayed for the forgiveness of his tormentors. He asks us to do the same. How does Jesus teach us to pray in the Lord's Prayer? Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. In case you struggle with that, let me just, and, and we do, I think we all do, just remember that we gain far more than we lose in that transaction. God forgives us far, far more than we ever forgive anyone else. And look where we go from here. I think this is really a beautiful turn in, these, in this teaching. The saying about mercy promises us a benefit that comes from God, a reward. And there's no shame in seeking these rewards from God. Blessed are the merciful. They will obtain mercy. But the next saying is, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. That makes God himself the reward. This is a significant step in any person's relationship with God. To love God, not mainly for what God gives you, but simply because of who God is. Having a pure heart isn't just about overcoming dirty thoughts and bad motives, so it certainly is, but it's about something deeper, about having God absolutely at the center of everything you do, of everything that you want, of everything that you hope for. It's moving beyond the blessings towards the one who blesses. Seek, and you will find. The next saying is, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called children of God. To be a peacemaker means to, it's not a passive thing like, or just a reactive thing like stepping into other people's quarrels. That's not what Jesus is talking about. You're not the, Jesus isn't calling us to be the referee in other people's disputes. To be a peacemaker means to create shalom in the world, in your own life, and in other people's lives. In other words, if you get this far, you have started to do things that actually have a positive effect on other people, and on God's creation. If you get this far, you're not only beginning to love God more purely, but you're beginning to embody God's self-giving love, that kind of love, and extending that love to others. Your doing is becoming like God's doing. And to be called a son of God or a daughter of God doesn't just describe a relationship. It describes a family resemblance. So the progression that Jesus is describing here as, as we go into the home stretch of the Beatitudes is from receiving the benefits that come from God to actually experiencing communion with God to 
one step farther, actually becoming like God and you yourself becoming a source of God's blessing to others, a creator of shalom named as a child of God. Then, of course, there's one more saying, one more step. Oh, if only Jesus had stopped after that perfect number seven, but he doesn't. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's be clear. Jesus is not telling us to go out and look for ways to be persecuted. Go out there and be annoying. Make people despise you. Act like such an idiot that everyone writes you off. No, 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 no. Jesus is acknowledging an important fact, though. When the light shines in the darkness, the darkness does not always welcome it. In fact, the darkness sometimes reacts violently against the light. And if we begin to do the things that God does and that Jesus did, if we really begin to embody God's character and do God's work, we will often experience rejection and resistance and even persecution. I'm pretty sure Pastor Jim is going to pick up this theme next week when he preaches on the next part of Matthew 5, but I wanted to set the stage for it. I wanted to end also on a note of hope. So let me say two hopeful things. First of all, experiencing the things I've been talking about in the last minute or two, resistance and rejection and even persecution, is a way of sharing Christ's sufferings. If we share in his sufferings, the Apostle Paul says in Romans 8 and many other places, we will also share in his glory. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. These sayings end with the same promise they began with, wrapping all of this up into a beautiful unity. If you embody these things, the kingdom of heaven is yours. And if you share Christ's sufferings, if the world hates you in the same way that it hated him, you will be blessed. But here's one more thing. I've already alluded to it. Jesus himself encountered resistance, rejection, and persecution. He was the true light that gives light coming in to every, in, that gives life to every person coming into the world. And when he came, the world did not receive him. And yet some did. This is one of the great paradoxes of the gospel. And um, I think the the Gospel of John chapter 1 really captures this spectacularly. He was the true light coming into the world. He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. And yet, to those who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave them the right to become the children of God. In other words, the kingdom of God grows in us when we embody its values as the Beatitudes describe them. But the kingdom of God also grows in the world when we practice its ways and model them to the world. When the light of Christ shines in us and shines from us, even if some reject it, others may receive it. We're not just called to be citizens of this kingdom that Jesus is the king of. We're called to be ambassadors in the world that he sent us into. And if we Do that well. That will bring glory to our Father in heaven. And there's really no higher reward than that. 
Again, from the Gospel of John. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Jesus calls us to bring glory to his Father in heaven. That is an astonishing hope. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. If we lived the way these, these sayings teach us to live, if every Christian in the United States even came close to that, it would so transform our society that you would not even recognize it. It would almost look like the kingdom of heaven. Would you pray with me? Father, we're torn between words like we are truly sorry and we humbly repent and words that actively plead for your saving grace in our lives and in the lives of others. We're also thinking here we are. Send us. Change our lives and through our lives and the lives of many like us change the world. This seems like a crazy thing to ask for, but it seems also to describe your plan of salvation, to send light into this dark world, to call people like us the salt of the earth and the light of the world. Father, teach us to live in these ways that we become part of your kingdom, not just citizens, but ambassadors. Give us grace to bring glory to your name. We pray these things through your Son, our Lord Jesus. Amen.